For June 27th, 2022, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 730. Something is happening while nothing is happening. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are tucking in to anything in the Downton Abbey franchise. That's right. We're now entirely a Downton Abbey podcast. Uh, that's all we're going to do. It's going, it's going to be called Dowager Talk from, uh, from now. <laughs> Until the end. No, uh, uh, we're we're going to talk about Downton Abbey: A New Era. Uh, Pete, how was that for not gaslighting our listeners? Matthew, I never thought it would be appropriate for a podcast to have something so drab as a mission statement. <laughs> oh yes, what is what? Uh, Pete, would you would you adjust the illumination on the wall from the newfangled gaslight? <laughs> Um, uh, No, we actually are going to talk about the uh, talk about Downton Abbey, a new era. And uh, I'm Matt and that's Pete. And it is a storied two hander. That is uh, that is fantastic. Cannot wait. Um, The uh, will not have to. Well, won't have to because we're going to do it. We're going to do it right now. Spoiler for Downton Abbey. All seasons, all books. Uh, Julian Fellows is back. Uh, writing his characters, the uh, the the Robert Crawley, the seventh Earl of Grantham, and uh, you know all all the rest, all your all your favorite people, um, and also uh, Mosley. No, he's one of your favorite people as well. Uh, all all of your favorite people and some new French folks as well. That's right, because they go to the south of France. In, uh, in the new Downton Abbey movie. So now this franchise, I, I told you to my everlasting shame, uh, my mother told me that this film had been released and that she had gone to see it in the theaters. We did not see it in the theaters. We saw it digitally. It is available. I think, I think just for purchase right now on all the, all the various platforms. Um, and, uh, they, they have done a second film in the Downton Abbey. In the Downton Abbey franchise, that's uh, and it's you know it's fantastic to see. So, what Pete is the plot of the, or what what we should we should just orient people because I'm sure not everyone has seen. Maybe like us, they didn't even know that there was a second Downton Abbey movie, which is entitled Downton Abbey: The Next Generation, and it begins (laughs) France, the final frontier. (laughs) So. One thing Downton Abbey has done, before I explain exactly what this movie is about, is put to rest all the complaints about whether a TV show or a book or some beloved property can be made into a movie or a sequel. Because Downton Abbey has now produced, seemingly effortlessly, two very good movies that give people who like the show everything they could possibly want yes. without without sacrificing anything yes <laughs> like these these are like this is a two hour long uber episode of downton abbey yes it's like yeah. it's like star trek nemesis it, yes. no not nemesis what am i which is the one i'm thinking of insurrection yeah it's like star trek insurrection everyone said uh the knock on it was this is just a two-hour episode of the next generation and my answer is what the hell is wrong with that <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, sounds delightful. And it has F. Murray Abraham 
eschewing uh, not not Downton Abbey, the next generation. No, Downton Abbey, uh, the next generation has McNulty from The Wire. Yes, uh, you know, with a pencil mustache. Oh, it's oh, so good. Delightful. It's so good. And the actors who don't want to be in it just have excuses to not be in it, which is also great. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, that's it does give us it does. Uh, it does actually provide. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a yeah. little bit later. But yes, you're right, Pete. Downton Abbey has produced two uh, more than creditable, solid, solidly like more uh, solidly successful films. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Love it. So. What is this movie about? Again, all spoilers for this movie because there are twists. And these are the kind of twists that you would prefer to have revealed to you in the process of watching a comfortable and not particularly threatening period drama slash comedy. Oh, it's glorious. <laughs> um, so here's how I would describe the plot. In a, a rakish and incredibly handsome French marquis uh, in the late 19th century – falls head over heels in love with a young Maggie Smith, Dowager Countess, while she is journeying in the south of France shortly after her wedding. They spend a week together of amorous social engagement during which they never engage in any sort of carnality, right, or any sort of uh, physical sexual interaction but but merely engage on a flirtatious and witty and uh and just sort of amorous sort of uh sort of play for a solid week uh after after which she goes home and uh shortly thereafter has a child the earl of grantham right the the main dude the patriarch of downton abbey is is the baby who is born about nine months after this week-long uh, uh, sort of passionate but non-sexual affair. And this Frenchman is so French and over-the-top and handsome and romantic that out of something like spite, <laughs> 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 he bequeaths his the villa where he tried to have sex with this guy's mom <laughs> to the guy <laughs> through the mom. <laughs> as a baby that should have been his but wasn't <laughs> right it, it's sort of like a sort of like a you got me right sort of like a well if i can't have you right then then what use is this to me a, a marquee with with many houses who at no point is in any sort of threat of financial ruin like so many of the other noble houses of downton abbey this fabulously rich gallivanting french no- nobleman uh, basically is like, no, well, because if we know one thing, Pete, about the French aristocracy is that it is incredibly stable. Yeah. They are, <laughs> <laughs> nothing has ever it's, happened to disrupt like palatial neoclassical, gorgeous villa on the shore of the Mediterranean, surrounded by palm trees and, and with marble staircases and all sorts of stuff, which his family has been using for, uh, well, part, part of this whole thing is about when you go to the south of France. We're not going to talk about that. But the point is that uh, he bequeaths this to the Dowager Countess to give to her son, who is the baby that she had that let this guy know that he really that she really wasn't going to leave her husband for him. Right. And uh, but bequeaths it to her anyway. And he has now and he told and he gives the impression to his own family that this guy is his son, like but through not telling them details. Right. 
Um, this this his own son is convinced that the Earl of Grantham is his brother, but doesn't really say anything for a long time. And his wife, <laughs> who he ignores or hates or is hated by for most of his life while he continues to write love notes to Maggie Smith, uh, uh, hates this whole thing a whole lot, <laughs> which is entirely understandable because it's kind of awful, but also amazing. Uh, so he dies and we never meet him. So he's this figure that is in the in in the wings uh, in in this in this movie, but he dies and his estate is being parceled out. And he had told Maggie Smith that he was giving her, or the Dowager Countess, that he was giving her this villa, but she never took it seriously, and so she never you know picked up the keys and took it around the block. And so you know she gets it now. And well, what happens is when he dies, his his estate is executed, and yes. so like a lawyer calls her and it's like, hey, you you've had this villa for all, yes. for all these decades, you know, you can come and and take it now. And so the fam, you know, this this is all. Pete has given us a lot of pre story and like has has clarified some things that are that are mysteries during yes. during the the course of the film, like whether to what extent carnality was involved in the uh, amorous social engagement of the now dowager countess and uh 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 marquis uh marquis kissy face um yes. the uh what's his name marquis uh montmirail yes uh, yes i remember it's like the toyota mirai the hydro- <laughs> yeah it's a fuel cell car right oh yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and that's uh yeah and and marquis de fuel cell um <laughs> You know, whether, whether, yeah. And so, uh, Robert begins to question his own, his own parentage. It's very, uh, it's very disturbing to him, um, that he might be a fraud. He might not actually be, uh, the real Earl of Grantham after all. Right. Um, right. Yes. And, and that is, that is one of the plots it is that the Earl of Grantham brings a coterie down to the south of France to stay at this villa, meet the family, and suss out the mystery of this villa. Where did it come from? Why is it being left to his family? Is he uh, is he the Jon Snow of, of, of York? <laughs> right. And, it, you know, as it turns out, he knows nothing because, yes. you know, his his mom was uh, having been having been involved with the, the Russian. What was he? The the <laughs> oh, God, I forget. It's so Vladimir it's so Harvey Keitel, whatever he was. <laughs> Um, he, yeah. And, oh, and the, the Dowager Countess, uh, d- d- will dispose of this estate by bequeathing it to Sibby, yes. who yes. is Tom's daughter with Sybil, uh, the late Sybil Crawley, who, um, you know, will not inherit. She won't inherit Downton Abbey or the kind of the, what the earldom of, uh, of the, you know, the, of the Grantham. <laughs> <laughs> the Grantham-ness, because uh, right. that's all going to George. Um, yeah. The uh, 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 Bertie and Edith's uh, uh, kids are well well looked after. Um, the, uh, new Mrs. Branson is uh, the illegitimate daughter of of um, Dolores Umbridge from uh, from Harry Potter. Yeah. And uh but but will inherit the uh the uh bag will bag end, which is in the Shire, and uh <laughs> people buy people All right, we're, buy lo- we're losing the thread. We're getting involved in the no, legal well, my point my point is that like so she's the one she's the one uh 
uh, you know, a grandchild who doesn't have, you know, just fantastic real estate, yeah. uh, who just through, you know, accidents of marriage and remarriage and, and, uh, and whatnot does not have, you know, some kind of, um, enormous property wealth. Uh, yeah. and so this, uh, this enormous palm tree bedecked, uh, neoclassical, you know, Riviera hideaway, um, will will go to Sibby, who does not come to France. The children yeah. <laughs> the children don't go to France. You see the children twice in this movie, once playing with the dog. Yep. Uh and again, you know, at the end, uh dressed in in gray clothes, uh when spoiler alert, um Violet, the Dowager Countess, uh departs this world for the next and uh you see them attending the funeral procession mm-hmm. uh near the near the end of the near the end of the film. I I thought about that a lot. Um I thought this this film begins with a wedding, you know, so uh yeah, Tom Branson's wedding and mm-hmm. Branson, you know, uh was getting close with this woman um in the in the last film, I guess. It begins with a wedding, it ends with a funeral. And, uh, you know, and the, the, and the, the circle of life, you know, it's the yeah. wheel of, yeah. it's the wheel of fortune. One yeah. of, one of the kind of the, sl- the slogans, there are like four or five thesis statements that come at the end of the movie. And one of them is Crawley's come and go, but the, the family continues, right? you know? Right. Um, so yeah, so I should explain the other half of the plot too. Sure. So, so Downton Abbey has at times, set itself against great historical events, right? So it starts out with uh, being a drama set against the backdrop of the sinking of the Titanic, right? Because that's what kills the original uh, Grantham heirs, I believe, right? And sort of starts the whole succession crisis that leads to Matthew and his fateful encounter uh, with the road and his face. And uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and then it, of course, we see them in World War One, right? And we see the war and how the war affects Downton. And of course, we see, uh, you know, the Beer Hall Putsch involves Lady Edith's husband, and it gets involved with some of the um, instability in Germany. And, uh, and and true to this, the high stakes that are always characteristic of Downton Abbey, this movie is no different as it is cast against the historical tragedy of the impending unemployment of silent movie actors <laughs> as the uh, the talkies are a coming, right? And this is a this is a um, film about making a movie on top of all that high romance, which I wanted to throw out there first just to let you know that Downton Abbey is still Downton Abbey and is still finding new ways to be Downton Abbey. But this is also about uh, a movie crew shooting a movie on location at Downton Abbey because it's a big, fancy house. And the movie crew is shooting a silent movie, and halfway through the movie realizes that silent movies are no longer financially viable and has their funding cut, uh, but decide at the last minute to turn it into a talkie, which creates a series of crises that are resolved through uh, amicable stick-to-itiveness and kind of cross-class collaboration, um, which which is... Uh, may, may I say, it, it, it combines the, uh, the best part, many of the best parts of Singing in the Rain with none of the songs from... <laughs> <laughs> singing in the rain yes yeah uh man that's great so yeah so so the 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 comic 
plot, the sort of main plot that's kind of silly in this movie, other than, you know, the Dowager dying and the grand romance. And the I guess it is kind of funny for the Earl of Grantham to think that he's a bastard and to be totally thrown by this. But uh, is that there's an actress from northern England who has been very successful on the silent screen, but has a like, you know, has a has a My Fair Lady accent. Yeah, right? she's from. And, she must be from London. She has like a lower oh, class London oh, accent. It's not a York accent because she said you're one of us. I wasn't sure. I can't spot my. No, English. I think she means. I think she means one of the working class. Oh, I think she means not one of the one of the aristocracy. She means a you know salt of the earth uh, normal yeah. person. But that I think that accent comes is a lower class London accent. Okay. Well, once might have been called a Cockney accent, though. I'm yeah. I'm not sure if that that uh, term presents problems. She she talks like a small child with fake charcoal on its face in a nineteen sixties movie, which right? is like hello, governor. Right? Like it's it's like I, I think it seems pretty thick. It's not like contemporary accent, right? It's a nineteen. It's a earlier accent. Is that I guess maybe there's probably still people who talk that way, but it's it's exaggerated for comic effect on more than one occasion. Uh, that she has this extremely thick accent, and she also is a terrible actress uh, in vocalizing and uh, has real insecurity issues. And, of course, this means that Lady Mary has to step in and help produce this movie and become the voice of this starlet. And, it's of course, that's how it works, because Lady Mary is the center of everyone's romantic attentions, and we need to find new ways of her doing this, even though she's married. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the director is sort of handsome and sort of looks like but really is the DA from the New Law and Order show. She she finds her own Dermot Mulroney, right? Sure. And uh, and, uh, and Dermot Mulroney is like, you know, you know, can can I kiss you? And she's like, no. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. No. Have I offended you? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> she she speaks of it this with the same energy. But again, that, uh, I mean, there, a lot is made of the parallels between uh, uh, the parallels that sort of uh, Mary is now the new Violet. You know yes. that she's sort of taking over as like the Dowager of Downton Abbey, even though she was never she will not be the Dowager Countess because she was never the the Countess, uh, right. never the Countess proper. But she, I, I guess, she would have been had Matthew lived. But the the um, you know, the whole. The whole thing is that, like, of course we should believe that Maggie Smith had a chaste flirtation with a Frenchman because she's having a chaste flirtation with the theater director, a film director. Yeah. You know, yes, yes. that like and this is this is how she is. And her whole thing is like, no, I'm not. You know, it's it's very flattering to be desired and even pursued a little bit. But, I, you know, I'm a married woman, et cetera, et cetera, even though we can't afford my husband for this film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the crown ain't free. Right. Is that what? No, what is he even? He does every, That guy does everything now. That, Matthew that Good, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, has done a lot of a lot yeah. of different stuff. Yeah, exactly. So yes, so we much of the substance of the movie is taken up with the business of filming the movie within the movie, uh, which is just I just love it. It's just wonderfully done. It is utterly is so patient, and we see so many little pieces of early movie making that also are commenting on what's going on. I mean, it's it's a it's a fun. It's probably. Is it, is it my favorite meta movie at this point? If someone were to ask me right now, what's the best movie filmed within mm, a movie? Mm. I might say like The Gambler from Downton Abbey to uh, Maverick. Uh, which is, <laughs> it is great that Downton Abbey, the movie, and Top Gun took got their sequels at the same time because sure. I think they commanded equal urgency uh, and and, uh, and equal time frames. But yes, so uh, this is there is a lot of business going on with how this the shot the scenes because one of the big questions that I feel like 
I arrived at really early in watching Downton Abbey is like, what is in this show? Like there's there are things that happen, sure, and it's a soap opera to an extent, but the things don't happen so fast that it justifies the full running time of the show. The show is full of a lot of stuff that happens. And I feel like you can watch an entire episode of Downton Abbey or an entire movie and not really know what you just watched because the scenes that go by have their purpose and do their thing, but it's not necessarily obvious what's going on. Like why this is, this scene is in this movie. Yeah, and- it's, you, you've talked a lot about, about Pete, like about, uh, what George R. R. Martin said about it, the goal, the goal of his kind of fantasy fiction is to give you the sensory experience of being mm-hmm. in medieval England, right. you know, and that like, it's the, it's the, the feel of the dirt and the kind of the, the, I don't know, the crunch of the, the bones in the chicken legs and like, whatever, the, yeah. the, the smells of poop and poop <laughs> and poop. Like it's the, it's the, uh, he's really like trying to make it live in a, in a sensory way that you can access through, through reading the book. I feel like the point of Downton Abbey is to give you the the social experience of getting side-eye from a housekeeper. <laughs> and that like really the the sort of the 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 whole texture of the show in a show with a lot of sumptuous sets and a lot of, you know, decor and costumes and stuff like this all you know exquisite and all like very very nice this is uh, all the stuff here is 20s you know the the kind of flapper silhouette type of stuff the younger characters anyway where that that um uh type of stuff and there's there's a jazz singer in this film singing jazz uh but um but it's it's really the the texture that's important, you know, is the social texture of the kind of like the minute by minute exchanges of status and of, you know, uh, of aspersions, you know, and boy, the aspersions they are, the uh, boy are those aspersions cast. You know, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I cut you off in the middle of saying something. No, no. Well, I was going to gear up for what we always talk about when we talk about Downton Abbey, which is the Downton Abbey moment. Yes. Which we use as a reference point. And I and the Downton Abbey moment is the key. I mean, at least the way that we've been decoding it over the years to understanding an episode of Downton Abbey, which because it's very easy in Downton Abbey to get caught up in the long term plots and to just sort of assume that every episode is about the long-term plot. If you haven't realized it by now, Downton Abbey isn't getting shut down by an angry mob of communists, right? Like that, that was maybe going to happen at some point. It is not happening at this point, right? We are, we are long past the time where the Granthams, as they appear at the beginning of the show, are no longer a viable concern. But that sort of sense of dread that this was all culminating to like a Breaking Bad-esque ending where like the Earl of Grantham is like lying on his back next to a cobblestone road covered in <laughs> own blood like that's this is that's not the way the show goes right um but the downton abbey because the downton abbey moment is about understanding the individual episodes and i feel like we've refined our understanding of it a little bit over the years but one you just mentioned really struck with me right which is the source the social exchanges and each of the characters have relationships to the sort of governing thrust of the episode whatever it is that the episode is about the characters have different orientations toward it. And I think with Downton Abbey, one of the things that makes it so fun and so easy is that they don't just have different positions. It's not Hegelian. There's not like each character is either for or against the core proposition of the episode. It's more that the episode has this sort of core proposition and it is presented and inverted. 
and uh, I think we've talked about this a few times, but there are places where the core concept is brought forward as like, you know, this is the way that this episode should be understood. And the characters align kind of for and against the way that this principle should be articulated. And then the principle tends to be echoed in a lot of different places where the characters also orient around it. And in some places they'll be oriented the opposite way and they'll still be right. And that creates this sense of we live in a society with multiple equivalent points of view where people are coexisting with each other with very different frames of reference and also allows this show to flow from beat to beat without really necessarily getting boring while at the same time having these relationships being adjudicated through all this signaling without there having to be a whole ton of huge things that happen. Uh, right. And, and I feel like, with this in mind and with a key to unlock each episode firmly in your mind as you watch it, it just becomes so beautiful because the scenes are so meticulously purposeful, even though they are so just gluttonously idle, right? <laughs> like, like there is something that is happening while nothing is happening. Uh, and, uh, and and I think it has that energy. Um, and I mean, it's not nothing. It's not just decadence. It's There's real meaningful human stories that are that are being discussed and, and portrayed but anyway matt what was the other thing about downton abbey moments is that it is definitely possible to have more than one the point being that you want to take something from a scene that isn't in the main plot yes because that way you know like if you take some random scene that's not part of the main plot yes then and then you know that it's actually relating to all these other things kind of on purpose right? yeah exactly it, it, like the, yeah. the the it's you know i don't know the 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 downton abbey moment is like isabel and violet talking about how the crumpets are stale or something like yes. that and that's like you know yeah it's got it's kind of it it has to be trivial uh but i i you know i like what you say and i think it it really it accounts for a lot of the attraction of the show, which is to say there is a, there is a thematic unity, but, but that unity is expressed through highly varied realizations. Right. Mm. And that like, uh, that in these kind of like this sort of theme and variations, um, the, the, yeah, a lot of the, a character is sort of elucidated in that way and kind of interest is generated by do, by doing the, the process that, that you were talking about. Anyway, an- another thing is we were, you know, I mean, P- you know, Pete and I talk about these things on Slack before we, before we record. And Pete said something that I thought was very perceptive also on Slack, which I will repeat now and get a kind of cosmic credit for, uh, because the words sure. will pass my lips and not yours, which is that one of the techniques of, of Downton Abbey is to present a story which at a high level works on the theme of change, you know, and like one, one of the kind of the constant, one of the constant things, you know, comes to mind is, is, um, uh, the film, uh, Bertolucci's Novacento, uh, the, uh, uh, an Italian film called, you know, Novacento, the 20th century. Uh, and it's, um, the uh the film begins with someone running through the street yelling yelling verdi is dead verdi is dead and uh like the idea that that verdi is dead this is no longer the 19th century we're now you know we're now in the in the 20th century the edwardians i think felt very similar about the the rise of the 20th century in uh 
in England, you know, like this is no longer the Victorian age. This is that we this is now the Edwardian age. And, um, it, so it was kind of a, a similar dynamic. And the show begins with like the sinking of the Titanic, which kind of represents the end of an era or is, is, you know, roped into representing the end of an, an era because of the death of the, the, uh, future Earl, the Earl heir apparent, um, Earl uh, of of Grantham and that uh, who, who will inherit the estate from from Robert and that's like the one of the main marching things one of the main themes of the show marching through is like change or die or like you know the world mm-hmm. the world is changing um, I cannot I cannot go down in this dinner jacket you know uh, he says about wearing black tie uh, bla- <laughs> with no tails uh, at the um, you know, uh, uh, for dinner. Uh, whereas like for us, of course, this, the like black tie with no tails is like the pinnacle of it's what we wear to weddings, you know, that, um, so, so like at the high level, a theme that works at the, uh, the level of change and that at the low level or at the not low level at the, the detail view at the kind of the zoomed in view, uh, works at the level of manners. Um, and I was, th- you know, I was thinking about that as, uh, as we were going, the sort of the themes of change and manners. I, and I wanted to add one that was specific to this film. I think this film to a great extent is like interrogates the production of the couple Mm -hmm. in, in narrative, like coupling off how, who gets to couple off like everyone. One of the things is that like a lot of, a lot of tension, a lot of narrative momentum was generated in the series by like, are Mary and Edith going to get, are they going to find husbands? You know, these willful young modern girls, you know, are they going to find any man who, who would want them? And they had like rivalries and they sabotaged each other uh, more than once, each of them. And like, are they, you know, are they going to find husbands or Sybil, uh, you know, when, when, Sybil was with us. Um, the uh, you know, oh, she's she's marrying the she's marrying the chauffeur, Branson, the chauffeur. You know, um, this is not uh, this is not really possible anymore. I guess like it starts with a wedding. Branson's getting married. You know, all this is going to be. Um, all this is going to be uh repeated for the next generation i suppose though they they're a ways off they're 20 years off from the you know the sorts of shenanigans that the crawley girls got up to in the first uh uh in the first seasons of the show but like thinking about the the production thinking about the production of the couple thinking about thomas and his you know the the um conversation that he has uh with mrs hughes where like uh, you know at Downton, it's sort of accepted that he's gay. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's tolerance, not inclusion. Uh, I would characterize the, the stance of the people around, uh, Thomas as, but it's, you know, it's tolerance. Like he has, he has a place where he, he is known and his, you know, um, and, and Mrs. Hughes says, you know, I hope you will be, I, I hope you can be as happy as this cruel world allows, which was, whew, that was, uh, you know, that was a good, uh, that was a good way of like kind of wishing him well without getting, uh, too sentimental about it and importing too much of a modern sense sensibility into uh you know into 1928 or wh- whatever this is supposed to be but then you know it turns out that McNulty is gay yeah the the actor who comes to the uh who who comes to the house is gay and uh you know sort of invites 
uh, Thomas to go off with him and, you know, live, live as his sort of longtime companion, as his, uh, you know, butler or basically sort of live in lover, but like that, that, that the fig leaf that will make this all socially acceptable is that he will be in his employ. He'll be the butler and like his dresser when he goes to do films and, and stuff like that. And that, um, he can be, uh, you know, they can sort of have in, in some way, uh, a, a couple, which is the, you know, the, um, the, uh, goal of all people, I suppose, right? In, in this worldview. And so the, I don't know, the production of the couple is, is a, a theme that's, that's interrogated a lot. Anyway, all of this is preamble to, to give you my Downton Abbey moment, which was, um, when, when they get to France, Carson is, uh, it, it is understood by everyone downstairs that Carson cannot possibly stay and watch a film be made, <laughs> a kinematograph. Uh, be produced at Downton, that he would be horrified and his horror would lead to disruptive behavior, indignant disruptive behavior. So he is pawned off, uh, on the, uh, on the, the coterie that goes to, to France, to the south of France. And the way Mrs. Hughes manipulates him into it is by saying, you have to go and show these, show these French, uh, these people, these French people in service how it is really done, you know, how his lordship likes his house to be how it has to be run so you know so like uh one of the things that that happens early on to telegraph the the um sequence i'm about to narrate is that like early on as they're about to leave uh robert walks past him and is like carson i hope you have something other than that to wear he's wearing like a tweed a heavy tweed jacket and an overcoat and a bowler hat you know uh i hope you have something uh, other than that to, to wear you'll roast in the south of in the south of france and um by the way uh robert has on a uh, natty blue blazer, double breasted blue blazer <laughs> with shiny brass buttons. It was glorious. It's one of the best costumes I've ever seen him. I've ever seen him wear. And he has worn a dinner jacket. Pete, he has worn a dinner jacket. Anyway, it turns out that like he does, uh, Carson does go to France. He does kind of lord his authority imperiously over the household staff of this villa. Um, and he also just is sweating balls the whole time. He's so, uh, so uncomfortable and like so, uh, so sweaty and his neck is, the moisture sweat on his neck is shot in close up as he like swats mosquitoes way or something like that um anyway so as he's you know stumbling through the village in france you know uh just overheating he goes into a hat store um because his his bowler hat his you know felt bowler hat is just has become unbearable it's not uh it's just making making his head roast and so uh he picks out uh he picks out a hat and puts it on and it, it looks kind of frumpy i i forget what uh uh, this character says about it, but then out of the out of the like the little changing area or behind a screen comes uh, Dolores Umbridge herself, Lady Bagshaw, uh, and she uh, you know who's traveling with the crew, and she says that that hat makes you look like the oh god what does she say what racist poop does she say like the the king of Turkey or something like that the prin- prince uh, something of Albania oh there right? you go yeah. um yeah uh, you know so it's unsuitable and and gives him a, a like a straw 
you know, uh, I, what is it? Is that a fedora? What is that style of hat? But a straw yeah. hat that's a lot more that's a lot more handsome. You know, uh, wider brimmed, more constructed crown uh, on the hat, and uh, will keep the keep the sun off uh, the sun off his his face. Um, and he says, uh, she goes to pay for it for him. Uh, I should, I selected it for you. I should pay. And he's like, no, I won't have, won't have any of that. Uh, and then as he, uh, as they walk out, uh, together, the shopkeeper says, uh, thank you for your custom and also your lovely wife. And they, <laughs> and Imelda Staunton and, um, Oh God, what's the name? Jim Carter. Uh, the two actors look at, look at each other and kind of smirk, uh, at this impetuous Frenchman as they, you know, as they walk out together. Um, and, and to me, this was like, this, this is about, uh, this is about change. It's about being the, the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, it's about manners, uh, and it's about the production of the couple. <laughs> You know, and that like to to me this this little interaction hit all the themes uh that I thought were going on. A you know, a a scandalous looking or one one might assume that they were that they were uh behaving as husband and wife would, but ultimately chaste, you know, a uh, bit of uh friendly intercourse between the two uh, uh characters one from upstairs and one from downstairs um in in this place where like you know Carson Carson can sort of imperiously lord his knowledge or lord how how he wants it done or how it should be done or what the correct british way is to to do the english way i should say to do these things um to you know to run a household and and all that but but he's He's wrong. He's, he's attired wrong. He's outfitted wrong for the, the, the place that he is. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, the, the time being summer and the place being France. And, um, that like the, the kind of the, the necessity of, of change. He, he gets the change thing wrong. You know, he is all, um, well, one of the, the, the mission statements, one of the thesis statements at the end of the movie is, uh, never, never forget, uh, where you've come from. Uh, but it's all, but, uh, don't let it hold you back from where you're going. They say it, the, the downstairs crew says it to the actress, um, who is trying to, who is going to try to navigate the, uh, the advent of the talkies by, by moving to Hollywood. Um, but anyway, the, the hat buying scene, that was my Downton Abbey, uh, Downton Abbey moment for this particular, for this particular film. Thank you, Pete, for letting me go on such a disquisition about it. Sure. I am surprised there's a particularly, important uh, detail that you did not include in your summary of that. Oh, the, the Prince of Persia. No, 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 no. That those two actors are in married in real life. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, For sure. Which is, which is part of the like, which is like that they're actually married, which then reflects on the meta cinematics of the whole endeavor a little bit, right. That we're watching a couple that is acting like a couple that is, they're they're a couple that's acting like they're not a couple, acting like a couple, and uh, and that those sorts of layers are played amusingly throughout the movie. So yeah, I think that's a pretty solid uh, Downton Abbey moment. Although I think in our readings of Downton Abbey, you've always or often really latched on to the change narrative. That's been the one that seems to have engaged you more, I think. Sure. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm not I think, surprised to find that's what engaged you in this one, too. I think a lot of fiction is about, like, this era is over, whether or not you realize mm-hmm. it, you know? Right, right, um, right. But, but uh, what, what, was, uh, what was yours, may I ask? May I, well, may I inquire, sir? 
<laughs> well, my Downton Abbey moment is even less involved in the main plot of the story, which is when Lady Mary is talking about how her husband isn't in the movie, which is because he's become a big star since he was cast in this role and they can't afford him anymore. Um, but but he's his she's saying her husband is on a trip to Istanbul. Right. And uh, she's explaining uh, what what uh, the situation is and why why this is the case. And he's on a car. He's in a car rally. Yes. Yes. A car rally in Istanbul. Oh, how, how dreadful. But how exciting. Right. And uh, and what she says is uh, he loves cars. He loves speed. He loves adventure and he loves me. But the last doesn't seem to cancel the others out. Right. And, and, and that I think to me spoke to this episode and this movie on so many levels. I just, it was such an elegant little, uh, it's not a triptych cause there's four of them, right? It's such an a wonderful little anticlimax, you know, cars, speed, adventure, me, right. <laughs> um, and, and what it made me think of was the fact that this is a movie and this is a movie coming out at a time when most of the movies that are coming out are spectacular special effects driven action movies, right? This is, this is a line that's like, directly about the fast and the furious I felt like. <laughs> where it's like where it's it's and it's talking about movies and because a lot of the episode is talking about movies or the, a lot of the episode a lot of the movie is talking about movies and it's sort of calling into question not necessarily what are the movies for in sort of an oscar way but rather um what enjoyment is derived from watching a romantic movie almost romantic not quite with a capital r but like a movie that has, you know, romance in it and uh, and what what enjoyment is derived from that, what entertainment is derived from that that isn't derived from the thrill of action. Right. But it's also about a uh, the the choice in your life as to whether one affection countermands your other affections, whether loving one thing prevents you from loving something else or not. And I felt like that was all over the movie that that almost every character was involved and this is how i tend to feel these downton abbey stories work out almost every character was involved in some way in a situation where they loved one thing and were in a position to potentially love something else and their flexibility in being able to entertain both feelings at the same time was what then hooked them into the change plot that's what made that that was the survival mechanism that helped them to uh to make it through the change effectively. And the ones who really resisted this, who insisted on only loving the one thing, those were the what the people who really had problems. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the the French wife who uh, was still hung up about her husband, who apparently she never really loved in the first place, according to her husband's love letters to his platonic mistress, right? Like uh, maybe, maybe consider the source, but, uh, but, but the French woman who was very rigid about, letting the Crawleys kind of into their family's circle, right? Uh, the the actress who was not open to problem solving about her situation with being a silent actress needing to be in a talkie on short notice, right? And who, who was very mean to everybody about it, very nasty to the servants. Uh, you know, the, the rigidity there is the problem. And the solution uh, for the French family, although it's an ironic solution because they don't actually know what the situation is uh, in a biological sense. But how does that really matter? Because, because your, your father loved you. That, that was a wonderful little articulation of the meaning of that line, right? Mm. Which, which was like the important thing. So even if there's a, there's a good solid 45 minutes in this movie where 
most of the people in the south of France have like pretty much decided that the Earl of Grantham is is a love child uh, of another man. And uh, and they don't seem too bothered by it because your father loved you. And it's not like it's not one of those things where it's like any any man can be a daddy, you know, but anyway, any 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 male can be a daddy. But it takes a man to raise his children kind of thing. Right. It's not like he was really your father because he loved you. No, I think it's a, a bit more elemental than that. Right. Which is that the p- punishment for bastardy is ostracism. And the fact that this guy didn't ostracize you and loved you your whole life and kind of like raised you, you know, in this way kind of obviates the problem of you not being his biological son. Uh, it, it sort of makes it not important, especially at this point now that he's long gone. Right. And uh, we're not dealing with Game of Thrones kind of situation here where, you know, oh, you know, oh, gosh, nobody ever has love affairs. Right. In in uh, or in the 1920s. Well, I guess in this case, it's the 18, you know, 1860s or 70s or whenever it was. Um, but yeah, but like can you know, it is to the Crawley's credit that they loved more than one thing. It's to the Dowager Countess's credit that she loved more than one thing. Ultimately, the Dowager has a profound perspective on dying, right? Where she seems to like love living and also love having lived. Mm. And she sort of allows it to go, right? Not even that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm making it more cliche than it was out of a uh, almost a disorientation with kind of the profundity of the performance where, where she says, what, stop crying because I can't hear myself. Dying. Oh yeah. Denker, her, her maid comes in and is like <laughs> blubbering, you know, yeah. and she says, stop that noise. I can't hear myself die. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is great also because it's a movie. And so having a really dramatic death scene for a beloved character in a movie is a cherished thing. Yeah. And, and so there throughout this, we're constantly being reminded that this is a movie and and yet that doesn't necessarily cheapen the emotional impact of the things that happen because it's we're also being reminded that the reason we like watching this is because it's a movie. Right. And, and I mean, we would watch it if it was a TV show, too. That's not the important part, um, although I think there is a fair amount of shade thrown at like Hollywood people mm. in this in this movie because it's it's you know, it's a TV show that sort of continues to be produced as a TV show. We don't want kinema people in here. <laughs> right? But like even the stuff with uh, with with mrs patmore and the cottage owner like um yeah what, sure macy's macy's uh father father-in-law or former that's, father that's fred that's fred's father right daisy or, daisy's father daisy's father daisy's yeah know, who is william yeah. who was william mason uh you'll recall the the you know young dashing young private who whose dying wish uh was to be married to daisy um you know, a, a marriage that was never consummated, but she, uh, she goes to, uh, she goes to live with, with his father. And even though now she is married herself, uh, to, 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 she has remarried, I guess you could say, um, the, uh, she still lives with, with William's father. So she lives with her first husband, her dead first husband's, uh, father, her what former father? I mean, I guess still her father-in-law, though she now has another father-in-law as well. I don't know; yeah. it's difficult. I, the 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 I, I I strain the aerobics of of relational description trying to trying to figure it figure it all out. But he's so they're trying to get rid of him, you know, so that they can be a couple and the the uh yeah and not have a third wheel living with them. And their their solution is sort of the production of a couple with Mrs. Catboy. Uh, Mrs. Catmore, Padmore, Mrs. Padfoot. 
Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's – but what uh, – sorry, you were going to connect it to a, a slightly different thing. Well, that's the same thing. The idea being that the 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 father-in-law likes Mrs. Patmore a lot and also, like, loves Daisy and and also sort of loves his pride and has to get to a flexible point where he's able to love what he loves. It's interesting, though, that you brought up that she's a widow – because we have multiple relationships like that in the movie. There's, of course, Branson and his new bride, who is just sort of sitting there where other people talk about his dead wife and their child. And the only way to deal with it is to unconditionally love the whole arrangement. Right. And and that's and that's Cora has a graceful moment. Everybody has their graceful moment when they talk about it, where they talk about how great it is that Thomas has become part of the family, how great it is that little Sibby is going to be, you know, included into this uh, familial wealth, uh, you know, how, how you know, wonderful it was that Thomas married this woman who died. And well, she replaced. said, yeah, she said, she said, uh, Cora says, you know, when, when someone you love gets a, uh, gets a stroke of good fortune, it's almost as good as getting it yourself or something. Yeah. You which know, was a wild like way to describe the death of her daughter. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that's what, that's not what she means, obviously. No, she's she meant that about, she's talking yeah. about inheriting the house. Oh, I thought she also meant like finding love again, but I guess inheriting the house, that's what she's talking about. Yeah. That makes sense. The idea being that like everybody here is is has come to terms with the fact that Sybil is dead. Nobody is spiteful about it. Nobody hates Branson anymore or even sees the, the pain of the loss of Sybil in Branson. And also his new wife is totally okay with it or like is putting up a very brave face. Well, no, she's not. not yeah. It's, it's she's not threatened by it. And that's why, yeah. like, I think that to a certain extent, the fact that no one in this movie is venal, you know, mm. no one is particularly hung up on, right. Spratt uh, yeah. is not in this movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Spratt's not in this movie or the, like the, the, like the really cruel stuff that the sisters used to do to each other, you know, mm. uh, is not, is not in this movie um that and that like i don't know it like it felt so nice it was like a warm cup of tea pete and i like i find my found myself really you know very profoundly emotionally involved and kind of moved by it even though there's not it's it's you know it's a bagatelle it's not like you know it's not a a big weighty symphony it's it's and it's not meant to be but like it for for whatever reason i was uh you know i was just caught up in the enjoyment and like feeling like you know feeling like i was i spending time with my friends you know what i mean or like mm. watching watching the good for watching the good fortune of of people i loved which was almost as good as as having it myself to to the extent that christina looked at me and was like i haven't seen you this emotionally wrapped up in a movie since pete made you watch homeward bound the <laughs> the incredible journey the the in an act of in an act of treachery <laughs> cruel cruelty the likes of which sir i shall not soon forget um but no that that like but there was something something about it and i i think i i asked her what she thought of it and she thought well i i thought it was nice and pleasant enough and and everything but i i didn't know the people enough to care about them and it it was true that you definitely have to come through uh you have to come through all of the the TV show and the previous movie really to have the level of like involvement with with these characters to even understand what the what the poop is going on uh, 
uh, all the time. Like, wait, who's <laughs> wait, who's that? Is that Mr. Downton? Is that Mrs. Downton? <laughs> was like the level of the conversation that we were having just because like there's so many characters. None of them are named Downton. It's the name of the building. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> None of them are even named Grantham, which is the, the name of the, the the peerage or something. Like, um, That's right. That, they're named Crawley. They're titled Grantham and they live at Downton. <laughs> and, they live, and they live at Downton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, yeah, no. Uh, and uh, Downtown Abbey. That's a, that, that show is, I don't know. That's a. Uh, so another know. moment I would like to talk about in the context of this Downton Abbey moment, but also just in general, this movie is the moment where Mosley proposes mm-hmm. uh, and um, to it's a, it's a, she's a Baxter, right? She's, is she related to the Baxter from the beginning of the series? Here I am doing what Christina was doing and asking what the deal is with these, Wait, with these women. Which one is she? Is she the one? <laughs> so, so, so yeah, no Baxter Baxter was, uh, Violet's lady's maid, yes. I think, right? Yeah. At one Thought point, they, I was trying to remember what her name is—the woman that Mosley proposes to. Yeah, I forget um, her whole. I I do. I honestly, I forget her whole story. Oh, but she has she like a, a yes, right, right, right. She had a past as well. She was a she was a uh, Mister Bates a little bit, right? Yes, 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 yes. She was. She had a dark past. What will he? What will he do? He's so violent. <laughs> um, so yes, but he he uh, Phyllis, because Phyllis Baxter. Phyllis, Wikipedia Phyllis Baxter. tells me yes. So Mosley proposes to Phyllis, and this he does this because it turns out you know Mosley, who part of his comic, uh, his part of his comic side since the big cricket. Uh, episodes, which are kind of quintessential Downton Abbey episodes, is that he he is a hobbyist, an intense hobbyist in whatever it is that the Downton Abbey people need to be doing at any given time, apparently, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is like he loves cricket. He's been playing cricket since he was a kid. I mean, he's terrible at it, but he loves cricket, right? And uh, and so when the cricket game comes up, he's super psyched. And here it's like, oh, he loves movies. He loves plays. He was an English teacher. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and he... Uh, he ends up becoming a screenwriter over the course of this movie because he writes the scripts that the the actors need to speak because heretofore they have not needed scripts to speak. They have been operating through silent movie pantomime. Um, but this means he has a new income stream, which means he feels like he can make an honest woman of, uh, of, of Ms. Baxter. And, uh, and, and I think the wonderful thing about the scene is that there's a microphone hanging in the room when he proposes and all of the characters all uh, who are sitting in the main dining room while he proposes are listening to him propose and are all reveling in being able to see, to to participate in this moment you know a because it's a culmination of a long romance b because they're all rooting for it and it's taken way too long it's a real like will they or won't they situation but it's sort of a parody of one they're they are the joke characters in the shakespeare right they are they are the uh they're the sort of secondary character of the commoners who are um this is like rosencrantz and gildenstern are banging right it's, it's kind of like these are the the characters off to the side but also um because they're getting this view into this private space that they would not normally be able to see. And I feel like this is an argument in, you know, visual and auditory form and performative form for what Mary is saying in that speech I was talking about before, but in the inverse, you know, she says, well, isn't it a shame that the fact that he loves me doesn't cancel out the fact that he loves cars and racing and adventure? Well, really what's being said 
because we got to consider the converse is you might love cars and racing and adventure, but that doesn't cancel out that you also love Lady Mary. And what does that mean? Well, that means, you know, the will they or won't they, the intimate moments, the all of the stuff that she's been doing through this whole show and all these movies and all the other characters have been doing uh, is it feels summed up in how much giddiness and joy all the characters get in in sort of witnessing unbeknownst to Mosley, Mosley's proposal. Right. Um, mm. And it's it's also exemplified when Lady Mary herself in a different dimension. Well, Lady Mary herself steps forward and uh, and voices the character because then you get her character. Right. Then then you get this sort of real highlight of, hey, we made this show about the early 20th century. Why did we make it? Mostly because we wanted to have these characters in it. And having characters that function this way, you have to have them in a society that has very strict rules of courtesy or else everybody would just yell at each other and solve their problems or not in like, you know, an hour or two. And there wouldn't be much of a story. But the idea that they have to hide, you know, if you if you just call the cops when Pamuk dies, there's no show. Right. Like you have to have you have to hide him. Right? You have to have people who would, you know, bewitch Pamuk. And like entreat upon him in this forbidden romance uh, and then hide his body and then be like utterly sympathetic whilst doing so in order for any of this to work out. Uh, And so like there's Lady Mary's own persona, which is put forward as this voice of this movie character that's like, actually, yeah, you do watch movies for people like Lady Mary. But then there's Lady Mary's situation, which is also put forward with Mosley by proxy. You watch movies because of this. Right. Um, and again, we're not just talking about movies, TV shows, whatever. This is a five act play, visual drama, drama in general. Right. But it's like this is part of why you do it. Um, part of it is the people walking down the fancy stairwell, which is like the silent part of it. Right. Part of it is Mosley's big thing about like the reversal and the climax and the thrill of the end of the story, which needs to be there at some point. Right. But part of it is also this, the characters and their quality. You know, which has been crafted and and kind of formed and breathe breathe life into, which is so watchable. And then part of it is also this intimate performance of melodramatic romance, right? Which is like something that I think people just you know sentimentally and sensually and personally identify with, react to, connect with, whatever you want to say. Um, even in you know, I mean, it's in the Fast and Furious movies too. It's not like they don't have you know movies of intimate you know, moments of intimate romance. I mean, when Letty had amnesia and had to go to the barbecue, all right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then her fork was on the wrong side, and it was just atrocious. What am I? What am I meant to eat with the 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 end of a muffler? <laughs> <laughs> you, you could eat with any fork as long as it's fondue. <laughs> um, but yes, but I guess this also that that's one of the more sumptuously served through lines in this movie, which is the sort of Ma- Lady Mary who has Lady Mary been up to this point? Who is Lady Mary now? Who is she going to be in the future as she takes on the role that the Dowager Countess has previously held as the sort of, you know, chaste feminine wit? Right. Uh, the sort of chaste, married, feminine wit and kind of uh, hidden power in, in that is not backed up by the institution itself, but is the institution itself. Mm-hmm. Right. That uh, that the Dowager Countess has been. Um, but then there's then there's there's always been Barrow. And so there's this like sumptuously described and kind of articulated and reflected and kind of cubistly you know, viewed from all sides portrait of Lady Mary that kind of threads through the movie section of this 
of, of this story. And then there's Barrow. And what do you think about Barrow? Barrow and McNulty, you know? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, that, that it's, it's hard to say. I mean, first of all, what's Hancock Park? <laughs> uh Hancock Park is a neighborhood in in Los Angeles. I'd call it in the kind of the central part of of uh of Los Angeles. Um it's you know west of of uh, a little west of downtown, but it but it's a neighborhood where there are still very large lots with big houses on them. Um you know stuff that you might think of as uh, well certainly not as grand as like Downton Abbey but su- stuff you might think of as as more of a like a uh, a country house or a farmhouse or or uh you know something like th- something like that and the kind of big houses that like Raymond that like uh Philip Marlowe would like walk into and there's some like super rich dude with a blanket over his lap breathing oxygen talking about like his wife is cheating on him and it's like the ceiling is huge and there's porticos and stuff yeah that's a- yeah. i mean that's that's absolutely right it's where the people it's where the people of that time the kind of the the social you know, people of that time, I, I think would live, or maybe, I don't know, maybe like more, um, New York, more kind of nouveau. It was created in the twenties. So like, I think that the, it was kind of more of a nouveau thing, uh, rather than like, uh, east of Los Angeles in, in like the city of Pasadena, uh, famous from who framed Roger Rabbit that, uh, you know, was maybe a little more, more old money. You know, this, mm-hmm. this was where the actor, the, where the actors were going to live and, uh, you know, and stuff like that. In in addition to like, I don't know, Beverly Hills and stuff like that. But it it I, I don't know. The the salient feature for me is that the lots are bigger now, <laughs> now that like uh you can put more house on the uh on the thing and have something like grounds, you know, have some like, you know, I don't know, half an acre of lawn or something like that with some trees in it and a swimming pool and whatnot. Right. Cause cause Dominic West says that he that we've we've got this place called Hancock Park, right? It's like this place has just started, and I get the sense that this is one of the sort of storied old at this point you know by american standards kind of palatial areas of movie star wealth because uh, he's like he's a 1920s movie star and he lives in a big house uh with a, with enough room around it that people won't question his romantic dalliances uh and uh, and he's gonna bring barrow in to be his lover and um there's there's an economy to the way that it's sussed out in the movie that is clever and deceptive in the sense that there's there's like multiple scenes there they have where you expect this subject to be broached in some way and it isn't the subject of that you know dominic west that mcnulty is checking barrow out and is interested in him and that barrow is interested but also very scared of being found out and also well, he's kind been, of depressed he's been gay bashed you know he's been like he's really like the history of this character is is super traumatic and when you know when you consider being closeted when you consider like the fact that he's been uh you know the victim of violent attacks because he's gay you know and Mm -hmm. and, uh all this has been like really um yeah this has been like really uh, put him in a in a bad place and you you have to kind of know all that there's a lot like like mosley i feel like the mosley romance plot is not 
fully like cashed out. It doesn't really, but you need like six seasons of Mosley, you know, six seasons and a movie <laughs> to get to the second movie <laughs> of Mosley to like really appreciate the, the, you know, what a bumbling fool, fool he's been. And now that he's making, you know, the equivalent of like what, $350,000 a year or something like that. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, now he feels like he can propose and like what a, what a sort of a bumbler he, he is. And with, with Thomas, you gotta, you, you have to sort of, you, you have to have kind of gone, gone through the trauma to, to see that, like, why he's so, uh, wary about this guy who is obviously trying to pick him up, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, like, why, why this, why this would be so, Personally, I mean, because he, it seems like he lives in a milieu where like he, he is, as I say, tolerated, if not like fully included, he, he's tolerated um, and, uh, you know, accepted. Um, but that like this, you know, the, 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 yeah, the journey, the journey for him is like, how, how could it be practical? Like that? I, I don't see a, I don't see a way of realizing for myself what like how there, there's no path to the production of the the couple for me and you know dominic west thing is like yeah there's this elaborate ruse you know yeah. there's this like um we, we have a way of doing it it's in it's in los angeles it's you know uh, you don't 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 need to worry about about too much of the details and like maybe it's not you know it's it's certainly not the the what your and my contemporary vision of, of of what inclusion would look like uh it it is at least a step forward from from where he's at i yeah i suppose but he yeah he he certainly doesn't he certainly doesn't trust it um but uh the the but so when he when he says to lady mary hey i can go be someone's live-in lover you know and uh seems like seems like this is a viable uh, viable path forward for me. You know, Mary seems, uh, super down. She's like, uh, you know, hey, she, Mary says, when, when good luck befalls someone you care about, it's almost as good as it happening to you. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, I love the economy. The more I think about it, the more I actually like it. It's the kind of thing that would be easy to complain about because going by the rubric, it's like, well, they don't, do we know that they even like each other? You know, like we know that, you know, what about the power relationship? Is he going to be like a kept sexual object? And it's like, I think those are all things that you could arrive at by kind of plotting the story out on paper and then looking at what you've written. But it, it's, it felt like stuff was not said or shown. It, you know, it felt like we only saw part of it. It felt, it felt like we didn't get to see I mean, if, what it really feels like is it, as I think about it, is that Thomas is being deprived of the sort of fully realized intimacy that even Mosley gets by virtue of his, you know, his relationship to um, oppressive and cruel and exclusive social structures and practices. Uh, you know, that like we don't get to see a full romance between Dominic West and. I mean, between McNulty, uh, I don't even know what name I'm using for any of these people anymore. Carson and Dolores Umbridge are married and those that's not even the right movie. When McNulty and Barrow are like getting together, they don't get to have the kind of fully realized romance that we've seen. We have seen Thomas have romances with men before on the show that were much more realized than this romance. And it it felt like it worked for me as a counterpoint to the utter performativity of so much else. Um, and of course I don't know what it's like, uh, 
to have that experience. It was something that I would run into when in the theater, right? Because a lot of there's a lot of gay men in theater who share their experiences. A lot of the older gay men in the theater who share their experience about what it was like to be, you know, either open or closeted in a world where most gay men were closeted. Um, and the, the the economy, right? I, I remember that from a lot of the stories. The economy of communication that you had have to use to arrive at like very decisive decisions because you you could not afford to let slip too much. Um, but at the same time, you got very perceptive for very little. Um, it sort of felt like something like that was going on. Mm. I mean, I also think that maybe um, Thomas better like cocaine because he's going to do a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we haven't arrived at that. And, and that would be great if he, he walks into Lady Mary's house and he's like, well, I've decided to give my notice. I'm going to move to America to wait on uh, on, on McNulty, on Dominic West. And she's like, well, do you like cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's it's I don't know if it's there yet, but in a little while it will take up much of your time and energy. Uh, but it'll give you energy back for a little while, then it will take it all away. <laughs> right? Um, like it's weird, right, to think that this is a liberation for him, and it's also weird because I you get the sense that I mean I don't know. We live in a post Rock Hudson world, right? Sure. And I don't know I don't know what it was like before that. You know, like like what's the 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 Earl of Grantham has touched on this at least once in the past that because he is an aristocrat, uh, he was able to you know be an environment of you know male on male sexual experimentation as a young man and nobody was really punished for it because it was no, you know, yeah, the aristocrats like, it's just expected he was like he when he was like uh, when they were talking about uh, Barrow being gay he was like well I went to Eton yeah exactly like I don't believe you don't give the impression that you were ever under threat. I wonder what kind of shield Thomas is really going to have in that relationship, because I don't know what kind of shield being a Hollywood star in the twenties gave you sure. for that kind of behavior. I, mean, I, 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 have a I can tell sense. you that, that was the time when my grandparents were active in entertainment. I mean, if I, if you don't mind me sort of no, no, going no, on a personal, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing, personal, I'm flailing here because I don't know. And I'm curious, a personal yeah. tangent. And I think that like, well, I think rock Hudson was a special case because he was rock Hudson. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that that also like um you know cuz the cuz of the kind of thing thing uh the kind of things the kind of roles uh the kind of roles that he played and and sort of what a star he was but like there definitely were were gay people this was the time when my grandparents were active in entertainment and there were definitely gay people in their orbit my you know my father's told me stories about being a kid and sort of not understanding just not having the context to understand that you know these two men were together uh, who were at a cocktail party, you know, they, they drank a great deal. And like these two, these two men who are at a cocktail party were like, uh, were partners, you know, and, you know, he talked about how, how his mother sort of explained to him that, you know, they, they were different and they lived differently, uh, in, in their way and, uh, that they don't have, you know, they don't have wives, you know, they, and that like, it was sort of euphemistic. Um, and it was not, I think if you brought it out into the harsh light of day, if you brought it into publicity, like if you put it in the magazines or whatever, then that, that was a whole different story. But just as far as that community, uh, was going, it was going around there, there were gay people, you know, not that it didn't open them up to all kinds of, you know, coercion or, um, you know, all kinds of vulnerability if they're, you know, uh, if they're, if you, someone tried to sort of leverage their, their status, leverage their orientation, I mean, to, you know, get them to do things. But like, uh, there was a, there was a way 
you know, of kind of being, uh, not, not what we would think of as out, um, but, but sort of functioning and, and having a, a homosexual relationship in, in that period, at least, at least a- anecdotally, you know, I, I am aware of some people that my, my family was close to that did. Yeah, see, that's, that's what I was wondering. I should have just said as much because it said, if I hear that he's in Hancock Park, am I supposed to believe that you could live as a gay couple in Hancock no, Park? No, I, I mean, it's not really that. It's not, you know, like, well, the way you would say like West Hollywood or the, you know yeah, what I mean? Or yeah. like Chelsea today yeah. or something like that, right? Like, uh, I, no, I don't think it's meant to be like that. I actually think that this is like, this is the sort of nouveau reach, uh, neighborhood and it's just a, an appropriate contemporary reference. I, okay. I don't think it has the valence that you're putting on it with like hey this is the gay haven in right. you know on the west coast yeah. uh it's not that it's more that class wise you know uh glamour and income wise uh economically this is the neighborhood where he belongs it's also something you can name check that still that still exists today right that's true that's true okay well thank you i appreciate you that. know what's on the corner of hancock park is the uh the la brea tar pits where they oh. they keep digging up fossils of like saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and and uh and things like this Awesome. So, so what we should expect that things for Thomas will be better than they are at Downton, where yes, he is like tolerated within the house where he works, but was nearly beaten to death about a mile away, like not a few years, like a few years previous. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. That that it, that it'll be better, and that they they will have you know a you know they'll have a relationship that they have to kind of prevent present one way maybe to the to the outside, but also they can you know uh, inside the privacy of their arrangement live however they live however they want i mean i think that that i and i just get the sense thematically that it's meant to give him it's meant to give him that you know like Mm -hmm. it's meant to sort of it's meant to sort of wrap everyone uh pete we have we've been going for quite a while now and we haven't even been been able to talk about the uh a lot of the aspects of the meta movie the movie you know the movie within the movie and like kind of the the comments on on Downton Abbey and and all that. I don't know. Is there? Do you feel like you have five minutes in you about that, or is it just like fifty minutes? <laughs> well, okay, I could be really brief. To to be really brief about it, um, I mean, we've I can say like I've already said a bunch, but that um, the movies are put out there as this thing that is crafted. That there is no pretense in this movie that making movies comes from a personal place of authentic experience, right? That it comes from a sort of dynamo, dynamo genius, transformative, Val Kilmer-esque, you know, sort of actor, right? That there's, there's the Apollonian exists in, in and the Dionysian uh, are kind of both uh, back, back at the West End and the movies are, are, are a craft, uh, and, uh, and, and yet, and yet they are a loving craft that has a lot of, to recommend them. And, uh, and that, that, that I thought was interesting, right? Which was that we're being shown that Downton Abbey isn't real. And we're also being shown that we love it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and a lot of, it, it dovetails, I think somewhat nicely with some of our own talk about acting and acting theory and what is acting and what is performance. The idea that Lady Mary is like, this is very much a Sir Ian McKellen, right? Like, what what do I need to say? The words are written down in a script. Where do I need to stand? People tell me, right? <laughs> like, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not actually a wizard. I'm I pretending to be a wizard. <laughs> Lady Mary never has to ask what her motivation is. She's there to speak in a posh accent, I suppose. 
Um, and uh, although now I know I know nothing about accents, I'm the Jon Snow of British accents. Um, I think I, I think I maybe know that uh, uh, Towie is a thing, and people talk a certain way on Towie, right? That's that's pretty much all I know anymore. Uh, <laughs> but but at any rate, uh, I, w- I would say that uh, that that uh, it's not it's not an Aristotelian idea of like there's spectacle, there's drama, there's ideas, right? It, it's much more of a like there's a sound technician, there's a screenwriter, there's a director. This is not an auteur theory. Julian Fellows is not giving himself a great deal of credit for being a filmmaker in this film. Right? Huh, like it, yeah. it's like I, I am one person and there's a bunch of other people. I guess the power of the sound technician is maybe the thing that strikes me the most as being a take on movies that I haven't seen before. Um, but At like, the time, it, yeah. Yeah. So is that that's accurate for the time as well? Well, I think I think so probably because this was the new thing, like in the way that like the power of the CGI people. I mean, you to all mm. these all this ink was spilled about the Mandalorian and how they shot in this like three dimensional volume that had you know sort of computer controlled rear projection screens all around it, and like the you know that now it's like the 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 power of the CGI artist or something like that. Like I think film has always kind of lived on the knife's edge of technological advancement, and that. Like, so whoever has the most volatile, whoever has the most, like the newest, the most in demand and the kind of the, the least well understood technology, you know, uh, is someone who, uh, you know, is, is someone who is high status on a, on a film Mm. set. Yeah. So that was cool. And I like that. And I think that, um, the, uh, the photo of them with top hats on, uh, was, was an interesting thing that repositioned everything in it. There's just a lot of jumping back and forth in time frame. I think you had mentioned that the movie that they're making is roughly the same distance in time from when they are making it in Downton Abbey as Downton Abbey is to now, which further reinforces the idea that the movie that they're making is a stand-in for Downton Abbey. Right. In, and their relationship to it is our relationship to Downton Abbey. Well, yeah, sort of. It's more, such. I mean, it's, I, it is a lot coarser. I mean, it's about, yeah. a, you know, the film is called The Gambler. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and when... Uh, like McNulty strides into the into the gambling hall and says, "Son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces, <laughs> knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes." And Lady Mary says, "Oh my, people hold their eyes. Whatever <laughs> will we have next?" Um, but that, uh, yeah, it's it certainly. I mean, it's certainly coarser. There's a lot less room for. Um, I don't know it, the 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 nuances of individual characters, the kind of the the idiosyncrasy of of individual characters. But I thought that like I don't know my my main read on the final scene in which the the um the uh the downstairs folk are enlisted as extras in the movie uh and the the shooting a scene at a posh dinner so they all have to dress up in yeah. you know aristocratic costume and sort of sit around the table while uh. The actress and uh, and McNulty, you know, have some sort of have some sort of fight, and they're so you know they're so caught up in the moment by the realism of their uh, the realism of their acting. Um, but they, you know, they show up and like uh, uh, Mrs. Hughes is wearing like a corset and like a, a gown, a mid nineteenth century um, type of like early Victorian kind of gown. Uh, they're not, and they're not. It's not a direct comparison. It's not like she would be wearing the actual Countess's clothes because they're they're from like eighty years, ninety years before. So, uh, but I, I felt like this was, this was sort of a, a 
Hmm, kind of a sop, you know, to mo- to modern sensibilities about uh, aristocracy being sort of performed. Um, that is to say, this is a kind of carnivalesque inversion right. of the, uh, you know, with with the servants all sitting around, sitting down at the table, and the actual crawlies having to kind of like scurry into the room and like hide themselves away and stand upright behind the camera. Um, whereas, like, it's actually you know lampshaded in the dialogue like i don't feel right sitting oh, i don't feel right sitting down in this chair well you've spent enough time standing in this room and that like you know that like and now the crawlies are standing in there uh and and they're sitting that there was a you know um uh, as i say a carnivalesque inversion that was uh ever so slightly more contemporary you know mm-hmm. than uh and in its in its aims or in its its kind of origin than um than something that would be sort of strictly uh strictly period but it was it was sort of fun to see them all have yeah. you know fancy makeup on for once yeah and i do wonder whether they are saying something about at least that they think about how downton abbey has been an upstairs downstairs show with a lot of downstairs like uh, more downstairs than most, I'd uh, say. Yeah. Um, which is weird because there's a lot of upstairs, right? But uh, but that that from day one, it's been very invested in the downstairs. And maybe here they're sort of saying, well, when we would do it, we would make sure that they would have their time in the spotlight, which is not something that every show does or something along those lines. I don't know. Um, it felt to me like they were making fun of some of the other period dramas that are more corset happy than they are. Sure. Uh, but I also haven't watched those shows, so I'm not sure how how funny that is. I, I did think that the some of which were, were written by Julian Fellows. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like Belgravia or The Gilded Age. You know, it's a, how how much can that guy do about this? Like that is like how much how many period pieces can he do? I mean, he you know he did God, if he just done Gosford Park, Diana, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I mean, this, oh, this I forgot about Gosford Park. Yes, goodness gracious. Yeah, and yeah. this is a big um, Gosford Park, also like a big, uh, a big subplot about the movies. You know, I mean, Jane Austen did a lot about it, but she was alive then. That was just now, right? Just like- <laughs> the the uh, you know Phyllis Logan, who plays Mrs. Hughes, is a was sort of like a gra- glamorous actress type of actress, and. Uh, uh, yeah, in early interviews, I think that the joke was that she was always like really dolled up because she didn't want to be confused with the kind of the plain and frumpy uh, Mrs. Hughes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so giving her that, I don't know, gi- giving her that uh, was a nice, um, I, I don't know, a, a nice little way to little way to yeah. go out, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think honestly, if we keep going, we could just keep going. And so we probably need to leave some to the Discord, to the comments, get us in the comments, join our Discord if you haven't. Come talk to us about Downton Abbey. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but I loved watching this movie, so I'd love to hear what everybody has to say about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't I feel like it hasn't been out there in the discourse in the same way that yeah. uh that, you know, fellow indie movie everything everywhere all at once has, you know. <laughs> Uh, has been out there in the in the discourse, so um, you know definitely well, they're exactly the same, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, absolutely. All the alternate realities in which uh, the aristocrat the aristocrats are never invented, where Barrow is the Duke, the Earl, Duke, Earl, Duke of Earl. <laughs> I I forget the rank. He's an Earl, the Earl of Grantham. Um, 
and Earl's wife is a countess. I'm Matt Rather. That's Pete Fenzel. Thank you very much for podcasting, Pete. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening. Yep, uh, jump into the comments. Join us on the Discord. Uh, you know, we, we love to keep the Downton Discourse going. And we'll be back with more Downton Discourse or, you know, perhaps a different film uh, next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably... probably... I thought the best thing about a discourse was that it deserves no scrutiny at all.